Now, this Sunday, we're, we're continuing our journey through Matthew. However, we're doing a little something different. I don't know how many of you read the blog post I put up this week, but in there it talked about kind of ways of doing, big fancy word, exegesis, or ways of reading the Bible. And so, this week, I don't have a sermon ready. I haven't prepped one. We're going to do it together. We're going to kind of walk through the steps, and if you notice, those steps are on the back of your bulletins here. We're going to kind of walk through those together and go through the process that I go, you know, some of the steps that I go through in crafting a sermon so that we can, you know, just come together. To, yeah, there, there are more bulletins over here if, if, if anyone needs them. So just to kind of help us engage with the, with the biblical text on, on a deeper level from time to time. Like a fun plan? Yeah, do it. A little terrifying for me because I, I, like I have some like rough thoughts here, but no like planned out sermon, and I don't typically like that. So it's gonna be good. So our passage today is the end of Matthew chapter eight. So we're just following the same chronology we have been, and I'm gonna go over here because again it's blocking my road, so I can't see. So I want to pop over here and read. So when Jesus arrived on the other side of the of the lake in the, in the country of the Gardeans. Two men who were demon-possessed came from among the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could travel on the road. They cried out, What are you going to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torture us before the time of judgment? Far off in the distance, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons pleaded with him, If you throw us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Then he said to the demons, Go away. And they came out and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and were drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran into the city and told everything that had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole city came out and met Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. All right. So, one of the first steps I take when approaching a text is looking at its genre or form. What we want to do here is try to understand what the text we're reading, where does it fit? What category does it fit into? Because what category it fits into can really make a difference in how we read it. Example, you read a novel very differently, hopefully, than you read the newspaper, very differently than you read a recipe, differently than you read a letter from your gram, right? You, you read and understand those differently. And even inside each genre, there could be little clues to how you could read it. So for example, if you're reading a recipe, and say it's for a cake, and you know, it says you bake the cake at 180 for 30 minutes. You do that, what's gonna happen, more than likely? What are most of you doing? That cake's probably not gonna cook, right? What if I tell you it is a Christmas pudding? Does that give any indication what could be going on here? It's a British recipe. So it's 180 Celsius, or, one, or 350 Fahrenheit. So knowing a little bit of the genre, knowing, oh, this is a British recipe, could give you a cue into, oh, okay, that 180, I shouldn't read that as Celsius, or I should read that as Celsius, therefore 350, right? Little, little things like that. So what is, bloop, 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 bloop. What is the genre or form of our text here? This one, it's a narrative. It's part of a longer narrative passage, so that 
pretty easy there, nothing to, I'm going to write stuff down. It is a narrative. It is a gospel, right? This is a gospel of Matthew, specifically Matthew's gospel. Set down. Oh. Matthew's gospel. What, what could that indicate? Well, Matthew's gospel tends to be the most, what we call, outward-facing gospel. It's the one most focused on mission, so that might come into play here. It is written primarily for a Jewish audience, so there's going to be a lot. Matthew has the most references, callbacks, whatever you want to call it, to allusions to the Old Testament, so that could be something we want to keep an eye out for, maybe. So just things like that to keep in mind that kind of encapsulates the genre of this text. Now, for this one, the genre is fairly easy. A lot of the gospel is like, that's its own kind of big genre. So that makes it a little easier for us. So that's kind of where we're at with genre. I feel like my mic is falling. I'm going to fix that. There we go. Next. Next thing I look at is context. The main thing here we're trying to do is determine the bounds of the text. So by that, I mean, is this text something that we can really kind of take by itself, and it's a nugget that we can pull out and kind of understand? Or is it something that's part of a larger discussion? Is it something that's part of a larger story that you really need something from over here to kind of understand what's going on in this text? And so for me, I identify three, I'll call them levels of context. First one is what I call local context, or literary context. What is happening immediately in the story around this a passage. What's happening right before it, even sometimes take a peek and see what's happening after, see if that could indicate something. So just immediately what's going on in the literary context. Second area is canonical context. What is, hap what is this text, where does it fit within the entire story of the Bible? Is it referencing maybe something from the Old Testament, if it's a New Testament passage? Is it foreshadowing or prophesying something in the New Testament, if it's an Old Testament passage? You know, just anything like that. How how does the rest of the canon impact this specific text? And then lastly is the social or historical side of things. The stories, the events that we read about in our Bibles happened at very specific times, in a specific place. So a lot of cultural influence is going to happen there. In addition, they were written by people at a different time with different cultural impacts going into it. So how does all of that impact how we read, what we're seeing in the text. Because our instinct is to just import our, you know, 2020 mindset onto the text we read, right? 2022, whatever year it is. Mindset onto the text we read and import our kind of how, how we understand things. And sometimes that can drastically change a passage. Uh, and we'll get into some examples of maybe what that might look like in this passage. Those are the three levels of context that I look at. So let's do that for, for this passage. So, as far as local context, literary context, what do we got? Well, this is coming right after the calling of the sea, right? Lauren preached on that last week. And that was a passage you guys talked about, we are, as highlighting Jesus' power, highlighting authority, okay? This is also coming as we've, this entire chapter that we've been on is coming directly after the Sermon on the Mount. And so some of the stuff we've talked about has been continuations 
illustrations, examples of things Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a kind of a continuation of that. Can I go to Sermon on the Mount? And associated miracles, healings, such after. If we do a quick kind of peek ahead into chapter 9, it seems to be a kind of break. So this seems to be the building high point of this section. So that could be something. You know, this is the high point build of the small narrative thrust that we're on. That could be something that leans into a little bit. We're building to this arch. Okay. Expand that a little bit more. Canon. How does this fit within the entirety of the Bible? Well, we are early in the New Testament, because we're in a gospel, right? So we have the entirety of the Old Testament we could pull from, the entirety of previous Israelite history that could come into play here. We're partway through Jesus' ministry, probably toward the beginning of things, so that could give us some clue about what could be going on. We're not going to get allusions to Paul or anything like that, because Paul's not doing things yet, so it, that gives us a kind of a tight window to, to look into. <clears throat> Another thing that we can do with this context is look between the different Gospels. The Gospels are kind of unique in that they recount many of the same stories, but with different themes highlighted in slightly different ways. This story is one that is recounted in other Gospels. So, what are some of the differences? In some of the other Gospels, they talk about one man being demon-possessed. For some reason, Matthew bumps it up to two. Why is that? We don't know. Matthew has a proclivity to do this. A lot of things, he will bump up the numbers of things. It could be maybe a, you know, David, or Saul is slain as thousands, David is 10,000. It could be, you know, something like that. We're not entirely sure. But that, that could be something to know. I'll put that down here. Plus one man. Extra man. Um, another big difference is in the other Gospels that tell this story, they have a little tag at the end that the single man, in, in those cases, after the demon gets cast out, becomes a follower of Jesus, becomes an apostle. That's not in this story. And that seems weird because this is the most outward-facing gospel. You would think that if that was something that happened, this gospel would really, really want to highlight it. So why, why not? Why, why is this one not touch on this? I would argue, and I think most, most scholars kind of are, 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 are aligned with this, that this passage's idea to highlight Jesus' power so did not want to bring in this idea of bringing people into the fold. That's not that this gospel doesn't do that. That's, just, you know, that's the, one of the main thrust of this gospel. But for this particular passage, it was highlighting power. So it didn't want to detract from the power that was being shown. So, all right, no, no conversion, no conversion. Highlighting you know, different aspects. All right, so there's our, our, there's our canonical context. We jump down to a little bit, our social historical context. What are we going on here? Well, one of the big things that jumps out is pigs. Pigs are the absolute poster child for uncleanliness in the Israelite culture, especially in, in the Old Testament, right? Think of like a prodigal son story. 
to highlight that, that parables, this person is at the lowest of lows, he's eating pig food. Like, that's how they highlight, just, this person can't get any lower. So, there could be something there. Well, let's, put, let's put that here. Clean. So, there, there could be something there that, you know, are we, are we playing with, with this idea of super unclean? Are the demons playing into it? Okay, that... But pigs was definitely not a random choice of, of animal that is being sent into there. Uh, when we, when the passage opens, we talk about the demon-possessed men are coming out from the tomb. That, that seems extra creepy. Why? Why are they coming out from the tomb? Well, this links back to something we talked about a number of weeks ago with the leper. They're both seen as unclean. They're both seen as complete outcasts, not allowed in the city proper, not allowed around people. So, the cemetery, the graveyards, would have been outside of the city, very removed from people, because they are unclean areas. So that just, that's just highlighting the isolation these two people would have been under. The, no one goes near them. They are cast out. They are out of society, out of the city. Another thing we could potentially look at is demon possession just in general. How, how was that thought of? What is what's the mindset around demon possession as a whole around this time? A lot of it is seen as punishment. You actually see in the Old Testament a, a, a few times people being m made to go mad with demons as a punishment. You see that um, in some of the Persian kings. You, you, you hear stories of them kind of going out uh, like, like mad beasts for a while and then coming back in after their sins have been forgiven. So there could be some element of that potentially here. Is there some kind of punishment element? Is, at least from society as a whole, that's what they think, versus Jesus, what is, how is he playing into this? So there's a whole realm of kind of demon thought that could come in to this passage. I'll write that up here. Demons. All right, I think that's quite a bit on context there we can do. So next is I like looking at and identifying, scroll too far, what are some of the important themes or motifs that we see? Well, this passage, oh, and I guess kind of a side note to this, not only what are the important themes or motif or themes, but why are they important? The analogy I heard for this, <laughs> terrible, but what makes me laugh is, you know, identifying, saying that's important, but not talking about it, is kind of the same as you're helping, so you're potty training a child, and you say, there's a toilet, but don't tell them why it's important or anything. Things are going to get messy real fast. It's going to end up bad. So you have to try to say, this is, I think this is important. Why is this important? Why is this impacting what we're reading? So that's what we're going to do here. Now there's a passage that really jumped out to me, this son of God. This is a weirdly unusual phrase, especially for Matthew, use of Jesus. This is the first time it's used. Normally, Matthew uses son of man, or Lord, or something like that. So why is, why is this jumping out? Like this, this seems to be an unusual phrase. What, why? Well, this phrase is used most often to highlight authority, to highlight 
power, as opposed to Son of Man, which is highlighting kind of the incarnate side of Jesus. Son of God is highlighting the divine side of Jesus, is highlighting some of this authority side. Oh, let's put that over here. Uh, nope, nope, not man. Son of God. I think it's interesting that it's the demon who notices this and uses this phrase. It's the phrase the demon uses of God. And I'm highlighting this idea of power here. Another interesting thing that I think jumps out is this use of the phrase time of judgment. That's kind of an unusual phrase as well. It's not normally how you know, the time of judgment, we use this phrase, is normally referred to. And so why is the demon instantly jumping to this? You know, this, this, the demon, this is like the first thing he says is, what are you going to do with this? Have you come to torture us before the time of judgment? That, that's a really quick jump and a really unusual phrase to use here. So that could be something we might want to explore a little bit more. This idea of what does the time of judgment have to do with Why this particular phrase here? This could be something we, we, we want to look down and explore further. And then just the theme of demons as a whole. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but that's, there's a lot of demon theme in the Old Testament, and so all of that could come into play and bear here. Next thing we look at is the structure or development of the text as a whole. So this is kind of the, the text you're looking at. How, how is it structured? What is it trying to do? Um, in the giant blog post I did, um, I talked about, I just gave one example of inclusios. Inclusios is a literary device where you have something said, something almost verbatim said again, or the same idea said, and whatever is in the middle is the important bit. This is especially true in like Hebrew writing. There's a book that was published a while ago, I cannot remember the author's name, but it was called Thinking in Rings because Hebrew writing most often will almost have a poetic structure. So it'll be like A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, D's in the middle, D's the main idea. Like that's just kind of a structure of things. So there's a ton of different kind of literary devices and such that could be going on. But like I said, in, 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 in the write-up, you don't have to have those all memorized. You don't have to have an you know, encyclopedia of biblical literary devices going on. Absolutely not. That'd be really cool, but you don't have to do that. Because the more you start reading, the more you'll pick up on patterns. The more you'll start noticing, hey, I, I see this a lot. I wonder what's going on here. Or this seems unusual or out of place. I bet this is important. Another thing that this stage does, the structure the text does, is for me, anything that just catches my eye, this is kind of my catch-all category, anything that I'm just like, wait, what? That, that feels weird. Wait, why? So especially in like a narrative passage. Why did the person do that? Why did this person say that? that? That feels out of place. That feels weird. But what is that doing to the overall structure of our text? This passage, you end up just with a lot of questions, and then you kind of start working through trying to connect some of these questions to maybe things we've talked about earlier. So let's do it for this passage. So many questions that kind of jumped out to me, or that I noticed or that was interesting, was it is the demons who make first contact with Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus and the disciples, they're just walking past the tomb. And the demons run out. Why? What are you going to do with us, son of a God? Have you come to torture us before the time of judgment? They're coming out making contact first. 
that, that is interesting. So I'll put them over here, do another one. Okay, that's, that's something. Well, I think another thing that jumps out to me here in this passage is the demons need permission from Jesus to do anything. Notice, they plead with him, if you throw us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Why? Did, did they feel they need Jesus' permission in the first place to go into these two people? Like, is, that just opens up some questions. Like, why, why are they asking permission? Need Jesus is okay to do anything in this passage. Uh, why did the pigs run off a cliff? That that seems to come out of nowhere. Right here. Pig. Uh, what is this? Getting at the idea of uncleanliness is, and this is something the passage doesn't talk about that might be worth exploring a rabbit hole on kind of thought on it. Is it the, the pigs running off because they don't want the demons in them? They're like, oh, this is too unclean for us. Is it the demons making the pigs run off the cliff? That wouldn't seem to make sense because they asked to go into them, but what's going on? Why? Why did the pigs go off a cliff here? Another question that comes up toward the end is when the whole town comes out, they plead with Jesus to leave their region. What, why? Oh, there's, there's a couple potential reasons. We could have, they think he is a demon himself. This is something that gets talked about later. You know, how can he cast out demons? He must be the prince of demons. That's an allegation lobbed at Jesus. So maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe they just didn't want to garner the attention of Rome. You have Jesus, someone claiming to be the Messiah, doing a lot of miracles, Casting out demons, doing these big elaborate things—that—that's going to draw the attention of Rome. They just maybe don't want to deal with that. Just leave. We take that somewhere else. We don't. Nope. Nope. We don't want that here. Maybe their thought is Jesus is a troublemaker. You know, some combination of the first two. Like, ah, we're not. We're not sure we agree with what he's doing. We're not. We don't want to. Ah, this is just too much. No, no. We we just don't want to deal with it. Just just leave. So this section can sometimes be frustrating because you end up with a longer list of questions than sometimes you have answers for, of just things to track down, things to try to read, things to look up. Like why, what is common thought on this? What is common thought on this? That's what we have so far. Now where does that leave us? How do we put all of this together? What is the main idea from a passage? The way I like to distill it down is to try to come up with one sentence that I think is the message or the idea I'm pulling out of a passage. Now, that is not to say there's only one single sentence you can pull out of a passage. Absolutely not. That is one of the coolest things about our Bibles, is that they can speak to us on so many different levels based on kind of where we're at in that moment, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. They, you can pull different things out of different passages. Some of them, there's probably obviously some better things you can pull out and some really bad exegetical things you can pull out, but there are different levels of meaning you can pull out. So for this one, what, I'm gonna switch colors, do some highlighting. For me, what were some of the things that jumped out, kind of pull everything together? Hmm. 
Well, the fact that demons needed Jesus is okay. That, that jumps out as really big. He, and I think that could link up here with the Son of God idea, the highlighting of power. That links very nicely up here with the calming of the sea, highlighting Jesus' power, continuation. And something I didn't put up here, but do you remember the centurion servant from probably a month ago now? Anyone remember the phrase he used to refer to Jesus that we talked about as maybe the most concise definition of Jesus ever? Pop quiz. There's a man under authority. So he, and he used that to highlight, you know, when I tell my, my underlings to do this, they have to do it. There's no question, of course, it's going to happen. So he used that same analogy to, like, you have that authority over everything. And we're seeing that highlighted here. So, like, that building of this building coming to, to a head here. And I think even the no conversion, not talking about that, could be highlighting the same idea. So for me, I, we're using this passage as a sermon, I might bring it all together to talk about Jesus' power. Like the one sentence takeaway might be something like, Jesus was so powerful that even the demons feared him. And we could take that and expand upon it a little bit using some of the context because we've seen Jesus display power a lot, especially in the last, especially in this chapter, seen this kind of building crescendo of Jesus using power. But every time he's used it, it's been to heal, it's been to bless, it's been to better our lives, to the lives of people around him. So I think we could add a little, you know, 1A, 1B under it. You know, Jesus was so powerful that the demons feared the sight of him, but so gracious and so loving that he displayed that power for, for our goodness. I think that could be a pretty tight synopsis of this passage. And, and like I said, you know, this is kind of the process I do when I preach. I'm not saying this process you should always do every time. But even when I'm not preaching a passage, I like kind of thinking of what's the one sentence kind of takeaway I would want to pull out of this. Because for me, it just gives me nice, easy ways to think about it instead of, you know, having this giant, you know, section of text. Like, oh, there's a lot going on there. What, what, what's going on? For me, I like kind of distilling it down. Like, all right, this is, for me today in this moment, this is the thing I'm pulling out. This is the tight passage, the tight meaning I'm pulling out. So, wrapping things up. Do I have another slide? No, 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 I don't. Okay. There's a lot of elements that kind of go into this. And notice there's a lot of things that we didn't, didn't really come into play with kind of the synopsis sentence of highlighting Jesus' power, highlighting Jesus' ultimate power, with, as well as we see the Gospels, over death, but in this case, over the demons, over the servants of Satan. Last week, over the very nature over, the, over our earth, highlighting Jesus' power. Some of this doesn't, doesn't fit into that. You know, things like, you know, the, the uncleanliness of the pigs. A lot of the kind of demon stuff here doesn't, you know, the pigs going off the cliffs. Honestly, all of that might come together to be some kind of other message, you know, potentially something along the lines of, of cleanliness, of sin, of you know, struggling with forgiveness, something like that. There, there could be something in there. But when you do a deep dive of the text, it's almost like a scattershot. All right, let me just gather what I can. All right, now distill it. What, 
What's rising to the surface? What's seeming to come together, you know, Lego block style to form a larger cohesive idea? You know, there are, and if you'll notice, when I kind of sit down to do this, you wouldn't notice because you're not with me when I do this. Um, this is not always the exact process I do. Sometimes I don't do elements of it. Sometimes I add in other elements. We didn't even talk about text criticism, which is maybe one of my favorite things. That is the kind of history of the text itself. That can give you huge insights. We didn't talk about the author of the text really at all, because Gospels, it doesn't play in too much. But other texts, that really does. If you're looking at like New Testament things, like Paul, the fact that Paul wrote some books and not others can really highlight differences, can really, you can start linking ideas. Well, oh, I know this about this author, or I know this or this about this author. So that could influ influence things. There's just a wide variety of things you can think about, look at when you approach the text. Now, I don't want this to come off as overbearing or like, oh, intimidating. Because sometimes when I sit down to read, I, you just sit and read it like you would a book. You just kind of let it wash over you. But sometimes when you come to a passage, you're like, I really want to really go into this passage. Something about this is jumping out to me, or I heard Jesse say something wacko, and I want to be like, where's where this coming from? What is he saying? That's where stuff like this comes in for me, is when I really want to dig into a text. So we're going to continue to do this for the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to continue here, so we're going to, I'll tell you the passage. It's going to be the next passage in, in Matthew, beginning of Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to walk through it together. It'll be a little bit of me talking, a little bit of you talking. I'm going to, we're going to have some audience participation next week. Does that sound fun? And the, the blog post is up, so that is, have more information you could probably ever want on any of this. I don't expect anyone to read it all. Kind of skim it. If you have a question, that's a good place to go back to and look. I'm excited. I think it'll be fun to kind of next week see how we do at this together. And so you know the passage. You can, you can read ahead a little bit if you want. Do a little bit of homework beforehand. But I think it'll be good. I'm excited. Join me as we pray.